Spy Cops Info Podcast. A series on the secret undercover political police who spied on over a thousand campaign groups since 1968. Hashtag Spy Cops Pod. Episode 18. The Special Demonstration Squad Annual Reports. First batch, 68 to 84. Welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. I'm Tom Fowler, and once again, I'm joined with... Uh, Chris Bryan from the Undercover Research Group. And we're back again with a, a delve into some of the evidence that has been revealed from the Undercover Policing Inquiry. This time, we're going to be looking at the annual reports from the Special Demonstration Squad. So the Special Demonstration Squad was the first of the units set up in, in 68. In order to justify their existence, they submitted these series of annual reports. So, Chris, do you want to just like kind of explain like who these reports were aimed at and who was writing them? So the first one was written in 1969. And the latest one we have um, that's been published by the Inquiry was actually written in 1980 which covered 1983. The only people that saw the annual reports, as far as we know anyway, are are the Metropolitan Police. Now, slightly confusingly, um, when the inquiry published the annual reports, they packaged them with letters from the Assistant Chief Constable at the time of the, of the Met to the Home Office, basically asking for funds initially and then asking every year for re- renewal of funds. Um, but... Th- Basically, these letters are kind of a, an executive summary of the contents of the report. And in some cases, very brief, if you like, very executive, so hardly any detail in them. It's not like the whole report is going all the way up. No. Um, we just, but basically, what we've got to be able to see is the thing which the most senior decision makers wouldn't have seen. The report was written by either the, the chief inspector or the detective inspector who was, who was within the SDS, who was the... The, the senior officer in there and they forward them generally to the assistant chief commissioner in crime so that's the at the time that's that post was, was scrapped actually around in the in the 1980s but um so that 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 commissioner was in charge of cid and and special branch came under cid within the map so yeah as far as we know, the only people that actually saw the whole report were the Metropolitan Police. Basically, it's an internal document. Essentially, the main role of the document is to go to the decision makers who are going to continue the funding, and they're not getting to see the whole thing. When I've been, I've been like processing all these, like taking notes and getting extracting various bits of information from them, and because of the way they were packaged, if you like, by the inquiry, I, I subconsciously I started to think that in fact the Home Office had seen the whole report just because that's the way they've been presented to us and because and then I, then I realized well I knew I kind of knew already but it's kind of like slightly surprising that the Home Office continued to hand over you know the cash to fund the unit when basically the only thing they ever saw was like a sometimes as short as a like a three paragraph letter just in terms to clear up the financial stuff um, first of all so it started off being funded around three thousand pounds a year um and initially in the, i think in the first year that money actually came directly from mi5 but then hereafter it, it came from the home office and i've done some sums i used one of those inflation calculators three grand then is worth what now 50 grand now i'm not entirely clear if that included the wages of of all the coppers who were in the unit or not. We thought not, but then I have seen a document which seems to say that did include that. But uh, one of the, I suppose, slightly interesting thing, the, the money side isn't all that interesting to me. Sure. But, no. but when we come to the very last report, 
um, that's been published that we've, we've seen, the amount of money goes up in today's money to £150,000. Um, so it's tripled. The actual, the real cost is tripled. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting when they have the hearings in May, which are the senior offices, it'd be interesting if that gets put to them by, by the lawyers. Why, despite the fact they, they still, they still have the, the same number of undercovers, more or less 12, um, but the costs seem to have tri- tripled. So, I mean, like, I always hate those things about, like, look how expensive it all was. But it's not really about that. It's just more a thing of, like, these are, the, these are their justifications. Yeah, that's, that's the core of the, of, of the annual reports. Um, and it's basically the SDS, the senior officer within the special demonstration squad, justifying their existence to the, to senior, the more senior officers in the mat. Um, so, but some of that, if you like, that the sort of broad justification goes into the Home Office letter. Um, so, for instance, this is actually the first letter um, written in 1969. This is from the Assistant Chief Constable then, uh, Brody, um, and I, uh, he, he said, uh, this is one of the other things you know it straight away, is they're always harking back to 1968 and often in the reports, like this was like the year when it was when there was like chaos on the streets and they had to instigate this this unit so even doing that by the, the following year this because they're saying the past six months has seen a lessening of the violence the process movement is at present seeking some other catalyst to bring all shades of opinion together and this is the other a, 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 a bit of a weird concept that probably only the police have of the protest movement there's not a thing really called the protest movement, is there? There's this sort of like pseudo-scientific kind of concept that it's going to kind of coalesce and come in ebbs and flows. And they like they, they talk about it as if it's like a storm. Like, no, we're not out of the woods yet. You know, it's, it's full of all these like metaphors about like, they're like wrestling this monster of like this force of nature. And the other thing is that it's, the way they phrase it often seems that the protest movement and protesters are constantly in a, some, in a search for this cause as if like, you know, it's, it's something that we were really trying to we're trying to find something wrong yeah, <laughs> to yeah. protest about, yeah, yeah. rather than it being quite apparent that there's all these horrible injustices that need to be you know addressed in some way. Um, so it says, yeah, the, the protest movement is at present seeking other another catalyst to bring all shades of opinion together, but so far it has been unsuccessful. Uh, we do not know. Certainly, we do not feel we are out of the woods yet. The pattern of student disorder in the states continues, and we feel that once our protest movement groups find the clarion call they are seeking, they will be in the streets in force once again. It's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, like you say, that the fact that they're already like on the back foot a bit. I mean, that's they sound so on the back foot. It's like, oh yeah, well, the problem's kind of gone, but they'll be back in a minute. They'll be back in a minute. Honest, and that was like that's the first one. I mean, 1968 in London, forgetting about what's happening all around the world, which is like, there's loads of shit happening everywhere. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was like two protests, big protests in London, Grosvenor Square, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, riots every weekend or anything, was it? And yet you, you'll see, you see this, like, oh, back in 1968, weren't things bad? Those were the good old days when we had loads of heads to crack, you know? I didn't actually say that, but you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. like the, the tone. Um, yeah. And also the, the whole thing about the potential for something to happen. Say so like that's the same letter, but this one's written in seventy two. 
Um, it's first of all, it bigs up the SDS. Time and experience has brought increased sophistication and professionalism to these operations and the potential for violence and public disorder in London in the year ahead fully justifies their continuance. And often they talk about the potential um, in lots of context. It's, I don't get the impression that their funding was ever really in doubt, but they, they're, down, they're fucking over-egging it, aren't they? Some of those Home Office lessons... Is, Letter, the letters from the from the assistant chief chief commissioner um, are so short and brief. You, you kind of think, oh, they they already know they're going to get the cash. Yeah, there's not much. Skip forward twenty four years, nineteen eighty three, and a letter from the Home Office. Basically, it says, "Do you mind awfully telling us what you're up been up to? I know we've not actually asked you this since nineteen sixty nine. Do you mind actually, you know, telling us something and what you're actually doing?" <laughs> Uh, it's, it's more or less that so you know not, not a great deal of supervision coming from the home office there that's crazy isn't it right? i mean they get you like how much of the civil service runs like that it's often on very friendly terms um so for instance there's um confusingly for us there's like three john wilsons who are in special branch one of them is called jock wilson presumably because he's scottish like every scottish person who turns up in london or at least did back then was called probably called jock weren't they but um yeah, when so they write this letter and he gets the letter back from uh, Robert Armstrong, a, a civil servant. I don't know if that name rings a bell. He was Thatcher's private personal secretary. Oh right, yes. Yeah. And he he became very much uh, a neutral civil servant. But he he wrote back, yes, dear Jock, have the money, Jock. You know, and nice to speak to you again, probably down the pub or whatever. You know, it's kind of that kind of relationship. One of the things I looked at, um, I didn't like a. In my notes, I've done a, a word search for anarchists and, and anarchists. Not that we're, you know, like overly focused on our own political movement on this podcast, but, <laughs> but correct movement, comrade, correct well, uh, move. I, yeah. I mean, anarchists, within these reports, anarchists are, are like a bogeyman because, well, it's actually the very first report talks about um, anarchists being very hard to infiltrate because of our um, disgusting... Um, lifestyles i think yeah, we mentioned yeah. that before they've got this real thing about squats it's like, I mean, they always make squats and like kind of squatters sound out sound like some sort of other species i think very deliberate attempt of de- to dehumanize certain people people being anarchists they stop being members of the public start in 1969 anarchists are they talk about anarchists being characteristically pose problems difficult to solve with the limited facilities the distasteful that nature of the way of life of such people, which officers must assume adds to the difficulties of, of penetration. In 1970, it set up black power, anarchists, foreign organisations and small, potentially violent groups which adopt a, a commune squatting existence cannot yet be said to have been mastered by our current techniques. And then so 1972, um, we get to the Angry Brigade. And now the Angry Brigade are mentioned just not when it's going on, but throughout so, so just to give some context for those who might not know, I mean, like the the, um, the Angry Brigade, you stand sort of head and shoulders around um, what else was happening in the UK in terms of revolutionary, so interactionary activity, direct actions that were kind of went a bit further than most other things in Britain were doing at the time. Yeah, I mean, they done some bombings. They didn't kill anybody. It's probably a summary, isn't it? The whole point is though, Angry Brigade weren't dealt with the, by the SDS. They were dealt by the bomb squad. In fact, the bomb squad related to the terror, anti-terror were actually invented because of the Angry, angry Brigade. So, the, I mean, as far as we know, the Angry Brigade were not had nothing to do with the Special Demonstration Squad. Okay. However, they are used within the annual reports to create this idea of the background of political violence. And similarly, the IRA 
bombing campaign just yeah. after also obviously much more serious and much more you know many more people killed however the sds connection with the ira zero yeah. <laughs> okay but often you find in the in the introductory paragraphs of the annual reports and also mentioned in the the letters to the begging letters to the home office the ira are mentioned even though there's no connect with the sds aren't doing anything to do with the ira at all yeah and so, i think this is something which we saw again like when the spy cops were first unmasked and they like brought out various you know talking heads from the government and police it, it was always that you know that terrorism that uh, serious organized crime were brought up as reasons for the requirement of these kind of officers yet as you say these units had nothing to do with those issues this is in the 1972 report it says um, anarchists their biggest threat is their potential for violent angry brigade type action nothing of note since the angry brigade has happened but but the anarchists are feeling the class due to the provisional ira bombing campaign so basically they're saying that um Anarchists might start blowing things up because they're jealous of what the IRA are doing, which seems like, again, not really how people are motivated. It's like, oh, when I hear like a, a, a bombing going off, my immediate thought is, oh, I, wish, I wish I did that. It's just, I mean, it's just ridiculous, really. And there's actually a similar thing, not about anarchists, uh, in an early report in the, the, in the 1970 report. It's actually on this Red Europe conference. This, this is uh, more like a international socialist swp type conference and it says it remains to be seen whether the british contingent will be infected by the more virulent strains of extremism which have been witnessed on the continent the lack of a real home is again this is idea that we're searching for a cause that the lack of a real home-based causes belly makes the extremists more sensitive to outside influences the jibes of foreign counterparts for their failure to advance the revolution the spectacular riots kidnappings hijackings and bomb outrages abroad and the comparative ease with which the police here are handling their demonstrations adds to their frustration there are signs that the extremists are seeking an outlet in small isolated acts such as the recent petrol bomb incidents in London. I'm not sure which ones they're talking about there, 1970. The danger is that being planned and executed by small cliques, advanced information or evidence after the event cannot be guaranteed. So again, the, there's the whole thing is like people, you know, activists in based in, in, in Britain are going to be jealous of their foreign counterparts because they're blowing up stuff i mean it's just ridiculous it's a it's a very poor attempt at psychoanalysis isn't it really it's like this this, this concept of like what motivates people is like keeping up with the neighbors you know keeping up with the neighboring political movements and the and the idea that we're like in search of this unifying cause to unite i mean it doesn't really work like that sometimes those things happen like obviously like the anti-war anti-iraq war thing where lots of different kinds of groups on the left all got together but it wasn't like you know we were like waiting for bated breath for the the, the announcement to come was it we we're trying to stop the war not for the war to happen you know it was the idea is like that's what we want to happen so we can find so we can like, piggyback our our politics it's a total reverse reading of the situation because the reality is is the greater the injustice the more people will be outraged and want to do something about it and yet so 1976 so this is like six years after the angry brigade stuff happened and they're still going on about the angry brigade basically a little has changed on the front in the last year i talk, I'm talking about anarchists against those professing the creed are continuing nuisance and demonstrations from the circles from which they move in um, and formation of angry brigade type cell violence might happen again. Several individuals 
are, are thought to hold such views, again, pretty vague, have appeared on political campaigns recently, and SDS coverage of anarchist groups continues. That, that goes back to the other thing which um, is so prevalent in sort of the police sort of consideration of how people operate is the idea that like are there extremists and they're infiltrating groups rather than people who are politically aware and might have opinions on things are motivated to campaign on issues that they care about and yeah Alankis also described at one point as sinister <laughs> as our big as the as our big flame big flame for those are who were around in the early 70s, mid-70s. Yeah. They were autonomous Marxists, weren't they? But they, yeah, they're described as the sinister big flame organisation which originated in the northwest, but soon spread to London. But again, a few lines down, a number of hitherto underlined revolutionaries from the shop floor of industry combined with a, with a clique of well-educated individuals, several with angry brigade associations. There we go again. That, that came up as a thing about, oh yeah, we wore, we wore badges that was like free, free the members of the angry brigade were on trial. You know, it's, you know the, 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 the connections they're talking about are very vague in that, in that kind of sense. But I, mean, I think generally we should like read, if, if Special Branch said it was sinister, it was probably pretty fucking cool. But the whole thing about, so like, as, as we mentioned in 69, we were saying they were quite anarchists, so quite difficult to get a hold on politically. You know, they didn't really know. And then, but the very last report pretty much says the same thing. We still don't really know what's going on 25 years later. But that's kind of, it kind of in some ways, that you might think, oh, that's like a, a confession of, failure but it actually acts as this whole thing is unknown it's like bogey as i was saying it's bogeyman because we don't know what they're doing we need to investigate okay our investigations aren't working but but, so is this the whole it's like a mobius loop of like justification it's what go around yeah it was in 1981 anarchists were labeled in the annual report sinister and potentially dangerous but and then finishing on the whole anarchist um self-indulgent little bit (laughs) um but so we get to Jump ahead to 1984, and now at this point, 1984, the main infiltrator in anarchist group was Roger Pierce, and he was mainly infiltrating um, Freedom Press, the Freedom Collective. Look forward to a future episode on him. 1984, I think he'd been around then three years in Freedom, um, so you would have thought he would have been relatively well read up on anarchism, and but so we got this really odd. I mean, you could kind of, you're kind of guessing this. It's been written by him and it's been thrown into the report, but it says Anika's rejection of party building, political campaigns and structural organisation will ensure the movement remains small. On one hand... He's got a point. (laughs) He's got a point, but the whole thing about party building is like, well, because we don't do parties, so it's kind of a bit of an odd thing to say. I mean, there is an element of, like, you know, truth to that. It's it's easy to recruit if you have a structured organisation, for sure, but given that, you know... (laughs) But I mean, there was also plenty of le- like left-wing parties in the UK, which were smaller than the anarchist movement at the time. Uh, in the eighties, like direct action movement were around, and they were much more sort of like more type sort of syndicalist organisations. So they did exist. They, you know, they use, if you like, the, the unknown as a justification. As I say, is that it always needs further investigation. You never know. These anarcho punks are so mysterious. Which is also a good recruitment tactic. Be an anarchist, kids. It's it's mysterious. There's a, a, few, a fair few random bits in here. There's one particular thing which kind of stands out. This is in the 1973 report. It says, it's a bit sinister, this, talking of sinister things. Uh, it says, like, the security service, in addition to their usual expressions of admiration for the work of the squad, 
are currently giving practical assistance in, in an SDS-inspired operation aimed at obtaining intelligence of redacted name. If the operation is successful, it might inter alia, inter alia, I'm not sure how you say it, Latin, isn't it? Yeah. Indicate a potential for a more aggressive approach to intelligence gathering in some controlled circumstances. Now, I'm not really sure what they mean by that. Some kind of coercion to get information out of somebody or blackmail or what, torture? Yeah, it, it sounds, I mean, like more aggressive does suggest some really bad things. Within these, the letters to the to the Home Office, there are basically two main, if you like, overarching reasons for the the squad's existence is you know, public order and secondly, subversion, which is MI5's bag. However, I mean, we know from other documents that on a, on many occasions that the SDS were kind of reluctant to help MI5 out on subversive stuff. I mean, basically, they seemed to only do it if it didn't like put them out in any way and if it didn't put any of the undercovers in any form of danger in the very beginning day early 70s there was one or two groups which had um, i'd say tenuous irish republican connections but it was soon decided that was too dangerous so they pulled them out of that on one level that they're, they're desperate to invoke like the most dangerous side of of like you know extremism that they put you know they can possibly think of oh it's the angry brigade oh it's the ira oh whatever whilst at the same time on when it comes to actually you know being deployed on any of these topics they're like oh jesus christ no that's for the big boys that's not for the likes of us and the barry tompkins episode you know right there was that you know opportunity for him to go and infiltrate the kgb wasn't there which he yeah. you know Ep episode nine if you've not listened to it go check oh, it out well remembered the episode number Tom. so yeah my5r generally only mentioned in that terms in those general terms about the sts is sort of providing of information re regarding subversive individuals and, and groups oh yeah so going back right back to the beginning <laughs> the 1969 report i suppose in, in some ways what they think is a good thing <laughs> um where it opens new entrants to the extreme left-wing political scene are being identified and recorded within weeks of their manifesting an interest in extremist affairs. And obviously, lots of... Uh, I mean, that, that's more chilling than the rest. It is. It's kind of like, you know, you know, all you have to do is turn up at a meeting once and you'll be like, you know, <laughs> a person of interest. And it's certainly something we, we, we heard from like later um, undercover officers when they were, they were being asked about, like, kind of, you know, the, the level to which they were aware of activity on their patch. And it was like, well, if somebody bought a copy of The Socialist Worker, I was going finding out where they lived. Yeah, so yeah, it goes on in this paragraph. Personal descriptions, addresses and occupations obt are obtained working within groups and this material is submitted personally or passed to officers engaged on normal inquiry work. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> as soon as you, you know, step out of line, your your name will be down, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, this is what they were collecting, right? Was it, it was names and addresses? That's that's what the majority of the reports we've seen so far are full of. Mm. And the, the, within the reports, obviously, um, when you get to sort of the mid seventies, there's a lot of stuff about anti anti fascist and fascist uh, activity. Um, so the first one, if you like, the first major one of these is the Red Lion Square demo in on June fifteenth, nineteen seventy four. And this is where student Kevin Gately was killed this is one of the ones where nobody really definitely says the police killed him it's not like the police yeah there's not many people actually say for sure the police killed him however 
I mean, it was it was a result of a head injury. It was. I mean, in the end, it was a result of a the police allowing the, the National Front to hold hold this meeting at Conway Hall. The the people who were running Conway Hall at that time, who thought it was a great idea on some kind of free speech bullshit. Free speech, free speech. Uh, to, to host a National Front meeting. However, I mean, there are, if you like, the analysis in the report is pretty terrible. Yeah, so it gives a description of of what, how the police saw it happened, which they saw. basically everything got blamed on in the newspapers on the IMG, the International Marxist Group, and then in, in this report they also mentioned the Communist Party of England, Marxist Leninist. Um, uh, and um, so, so yeah, it gives a description of how of of you know of protesters charging the police lines. But then it sort of finishes. Fortunately, the special demonstration squad gave forewarning of both the size of the demonstration and possible disorder which might occur. So so in some ways they're saying that the intel was great. However, someone died. So I would say that was a failure of intelligence. But then the worst bit is, it, it sort of ends, Gately's death introduced a note of harsh reality so that subsequent demonstrations both in the Metropolitan Police District and at Leicester... Um, did not achieve the aims of the militant minority. This is kind of saying that you know, Gately's death acted as a kind of disciplinary thing to anti-fascists. It's just like, you know, that's pretty sick. It's just, it's seen in cold terms. It's seen in these really cold, cynical policing terms entirely. There's no sort of acknowledgement of the tragedy of any of it. The Wikipedia entry on that Red Line Square thing needs to be heavily edited. Basically, it says in the in the entry that the, the militant and totally justified actions of the international Marxist group, and I'm sure others, to stop the try and stop the fascists having this meeting, basically caused the National Fronts um, um, to get publicity and therefore do relatively well at the elections. So apparently it was like the anti-fascist faults. Going, but going on to 75, so another NF function this time at i think it was their general meetings actually when they when they had this split and uh, you know. the national party which ended up being much more effective um, electorally than the national front ever were really at the time despite being much smaller yeah they got they ended up with a bunch of councillors so yeah so okay so this is kind of like very much a sort of smug um write-up of the um, of various groups including um the anarchist workers association and various anti-fascist groups to try and stop the meeting it says the final attempt by the ultra left now the ultra left is the, the phrase that is used to describe in all these reports in the 70s it's not really used now is it in, in terms- it, it's a very i mean like these days anybody who's using the term ultra left is a proper geek i mean it'd be you know you'd, you'd have to be you know pretty deep in um in like sort of praxis and well literature you know like theory to to, to use throw, throw around terms like ultra left but I, th- I think we pr- probably most listeners to this uh, podcast series would know what 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 it is in broad terms. Yeah, it's just it's just a different label to what we're used to more recently, I guess. The, the final attempt by the ultra left to disrupt a National Front function in 1975 occurred during the latter's extraordinary AGM at Chelsea Old Town Hall on the 11th of October, smarting from previous failures. Again, this is liking out as due to great public order policing their failures to. They're, you know, they're, they're wonderful um, policing which allowed the NF to march and have meetings everywhere. The ultra-left set up a special ad hoc committee, the West London Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, to coordinate the planning for the counter-demonstration. And it goes on to say, basically, they failed to do that. And hooray, aren't we great? Because, you know, we, done, we, we let all the, the Nazis march and have meetings. 
you've got to you know, from their point of view that we have to remember you know the national front were not a problem uh it's that's a line we've heard again and again not just in the literature from what they were saying at the, the time but also what you know former officers were saying much more recently when they interviewed at the inquiry that that the national front were not a problem and the problem was was the attempts by the the left to disrupt them that was the political position so you know they're not patting themselves on the back Again, yeah, so it's a similar thing then again in the 76 report, uh, annual report. It talks about the potential for violence amongst revolutionary ultra-left groupings remains as strong as ever, but is beginning to reel itself more in comparatively small local actions against, in particular, the ultra-right National Front and National Party when those involved hope to catch the police off their guard. To combat this, the SDS has found it necessary to keep a close watch both on the extremist organisations. Now, you might think that might include the National Front and the National Party doesn't. They mean, when they say that, <laughs> it doesn't mean them at all. It just, just means the left. And on local broad front anti-racialist groups through which the revolutionaries operate. Now, that you know, so that means they you know, obviously give them carte blanche to infiltrate all kinds of sort of very sort of moderate anti-racist pressure groups. Still in 1976, they were talking about the, the, the murder in Southall of this... Um, uh, Asian guy, Indian guy, well, of Indian descent, I guess. Gurdip Singh Chagar, Chagar. Apologies, I forgot his mispronouncing his his name. But it says here, so yeah, the murder of an eighteen-year-old, and they don't actually say his name for some reason. Obviously, it's not worth actually naming in person. Asian in Southall was followed by a violent demonstration there on the sixth of June. Joint action by community leaders and the police was successful in, in calming the situation. Um, whereas Trotskyist Maoists and anarchists seized the opportunity to meddle in troubled waters. The idea that, like, rather than being actually genuinely outraged by the, the, the racist murder, it's like that somehow there's this gleeful kindness coming from radicals about, like, kind of this opportunity to agitate around something that's bad that's happened. Yeah, so in, in Lewisham, the, uh, we've talked about this uh, perhaps in an earlier episode, um, where they claim to have knowledge of the this house that the SWP were mm. holding on the route of the march, which was stocked with petrol bombs. And they presented this as some kind of amazing um, bit of intelligence. But obviously, as we know, that that demonstration counter NF is now known historically as the Battle of Lewisham, so obviously not a great success for them there. The idea that there was like any sort of intelligence that came from the SDS beforehand was going to like avert any sort of public order incident at that event is is laughable. You, you know that they knew that the the NF march was going to go through areas where people were, where the NF had like specific policies against the residents. There's this laughable idea that somehow that the, the policing approach was trying to prevent disorder while it's facilitating an event like that. It's I mean it's just loony. Like of course they're not. You know of course they've got a political agenda which they're following. They say the most offensive uh, analysis actually to. Um, the the demo in Southall in 1979, which which uh, Blair Peach was murdered by the Special Patrol Group. Um, it's almost like I should say it's like a trigger warning because it's pretty like horrible and like a distortion of what happened. So this is quoting the 1979 report. The culmination of the virulent anti-fascist demonstration was the death of the anti-Nazi League supporter Blair Peach, and the subsequent campaign against police. So you know. <laughs> So apparently it was our fault that the, the police murdered him. You know, it's just really early on that, that they characterise, you know, justice campaigns for someone who's died as a campaign against police. 
that from the very beginning it's there's no recognition that there's any sort of that anybody who's involved in the the uh, friends of Blair Peach campaign is motivated by anything else other than being against the police. It's not that they're outraged that there's been injustice that their friend has been murdered by cops. This is this isn't like a deceit by the police. This is like their genuine view of what happened, despite the facts. So, so again, the 1980 report talking about uh, demos which happened up, you know, in connection with the justice campaign for Blair Peach. It says the death of Blair Peach, an active support of the anti-Nazi league, which was a consequence of a violent anti-fascist demonstration in Southall, provided the extreme left wing, again, because we're always looking for these opportunities, with an opportunity to mount a sustained campaign to discredit and criticise the police. And it's like, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. They're like discrediting the police by, you know, by, by campaigning about the time that the police brutally murdered someone. It's like, maybe the problem's the fact that you brutally murdered someone, you fucking bastards. Yeah, um, yeah I mean... More so than in any other period of the Special Demonstration Squad, I think the 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 anti-fascist the, the the campaign against anti-fascists in the late nineteen seventies and the facilitation of the far right by the police more generally really exposes like the agenda of this unit and like and what their role is in British society. Definitely, yeah, yeah. So ninety. So now we come to like just random bits of analysis. What should I picked out? Because um, obviously, because we've got all the reports nineteen sixty nine to nineteen eighty four. So that's 25 reports, so, so it's a lot of material there. Some of them are short as like 12 or 13 pages, I mean, but for some reason the, the very last one is like 40 pages long. So we're talking about quite a lot of, quite a lot of information, quite a lot of dubious statements and things which you, oh, is that true, or who's that group, and you go off. and it t- So, so you, you know, there's loads of these obscure groups that, you know, even though I've been doing this for a while now I still haven't heard of every single one you have to do a bit of research and find out who's who and these are sort of like the edited lowlights I suppose you could say of them if, if anybody's really interested in this stuff and you want us to do another episode on with more of Chris's highlights and lowlights of the reports please get yeah, in touch yeah, but, you yeah. Know, if you're a leave fan, us a review if you're a fan of the annual reports you know, <laughs> um, but anyway I've spent quite a lot of time hours on them so if you meet me in, in person I almost certainly will talk to you about them whether you want to or not anyway if you want if yeah if you want Chris to come to your uh, your local group or just yeah if you want to do it yeah I'm, I'm available for PAs but yeah so Brixton Riot so uh, this is actually telling this book paragraph in, in a lot of different ways so it starts off saying without doubt the most significant event in the public order field was the rioting which occurred in Brixton between the 10th and the 13th of April 1981 the thing is and that is the biggest and sort of most significant public order things that happen are always unplanned and spontaneous yeah. and they are not organised by any groups almost like they're a direct response to injustice <laughs> Which is pretty obvious to probably, at the time, to everybody in the country except the right-wing tabloid press and the police, it seems. Right. So, because it says here, so one of the amazing bits of uh, information that SDS come up with, it says, so, though in the wake of the riots, political extremists made efforts to exploit the situation with a view to the formation of further disorder. Intelligence gleaned by the SDS confirmed that the disturbances were not instigated by no members of subversive organisations. On the contrary, well-placed sources reported that though a number of anarchists did take part in the riots, they were not responsible for the initiation. Well, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, probably, I don't know if anybody at the time really thought that, you know, the relatively small number of anarchists in Brixton specifically and more wider in London had 
had the ability to start a riot like that. They see the, the involvement of those people as being like, oh, it's extremists infiltrating. Uh, whereas in reality, these are people who still also live in this area along with everybody else. And perhaps they've got the same, they're motivated by the same objective conditions that exist as the other people who are rioting. Well, I mean, the commissioner at the time basically did it, blame it on outside agitators, as all these things, all riots are always the work of... Because of the whole thing about outside agitators is it makes it sound like the people that are involved in the riot don't really have a just cause. They, they, have, they don't have a grievance. Well, obviously, clearly, they did in Brixton. You know, obviously, for people who didn't know, I'm sure, you know, the hideous racist policing, the, the, sw the swamping of Brixton and... The, uh, Dozens of totally unjustified arrests, as well as prior to that, of course, the the the, the New Cross fire as well was like a ma a major catalyst for for all that kicking off. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> and, and really telling you that it's like it's, it shows the why that you know this is never challenged. This kind of continues to be the approach the police have to this, the current day about all these sort of events. You know that like. They're, they're, they're still blaming outside agitators for things that happen. They're still they're not learning any of the lessons, really, which are kind of really self-evident to anybody who's not the cops, it would seem. Because, like, the right-wing press, which you mentioned, they're completely disingenuous. They don't actually think that. They're just using it as a thing. But you kind of get the impression the police really do think that, you know? I mean, it's, it's kind of polit a political dismissal, isn't it? Because yeah. you're, uh, they don't want to believe... I mean, the whole thing, what, you know, blaming on outside agitators was a denial of the... Uh, of the racist policing yeah. really wasn't it i mean that's like anybody there's loads of stuff out there about all that happening there's the steve mcqueen series about that check out on iplayer um small acts and uprisings yeah steve mcqueen's work on all that stuff's well worth checking out and then um 1982 so we get there's actually a two again this is sorry everybody who isn't in, who isn't an anarchist but this is a no, no apologies no apologies never apologize in order to understand like how kind of crazy that the way that the police reports are is having that bit of knowledge about those movements in the first place it, these things make more sense and it's no wonder that like we're looking at things from an anarchist perspective rather than a marxist leninist one because that's not our background yeah, yeah, indeed. So, yeah, no, in 1982, so this is a quote from the ATT report, or 8th, yeah. So, on the 1st of April 1982, a joint team of officers from the Special Branch and Anti-Terrorist Squad, CO13, executed search warrants against the, against Freedom Collective of Anarchists, this is their words, and Little A printers in the east end of east end of London, printing plates and several thousand pamphlets dealing with the manufacture of explosive devices, homemade guns, assassination techniques and booby traps were seized. Um, it was believed the intention was to distribute these pamphlets to the selected area of London in anticipation of a recurrence of the 1981 serious racial disturbances. And it goes on, in the end, the Director of Public Prosecutions decided not to prosecute the seven anarchists arrested during the search. However, police action had the effect of curbing the distribution of such literature. So basically, um, seized, they've done this raid, nicked all these leaflets, and then the DPP, the prosecution, said actually there's no grounds to do anything because what they were doing was perfectly legal. So just to go into a bit of detail here, so Little A printers, the, um, they were connected with Anarchy Collective and all them lot. And they were they printed a riot which you can find on Libcom if you want to find it. It's called "We Want to Riot, Not to Work: The 1981 Brixton Uprisings." And basically, it's just like an account and I suppose a celebration of of the Brixton riots. Um, the other the other pamphlet, which was being 
I would say, slightly mysteriously being printed by by App Freedom. Um, maybe it was actually being done by Aldgate Press, which is their commercial arm, isn't it? Yeah. Now this is a funny thing because, as far as I know, in Freedom Collective around this time, most people involved were of a pacifist orientation. Yeah, but they were printing. They I spoke to somebody who was around at the time, and they were basically um, had been ordered to print um, this sort of leaflet. It's kind of like the anarchist cookbook, but it was actually it's really weird that they were printing it because it was basically this uh, a pamphlet written by this right wing militia guy in in the states about how to defend yourself against the state. Remember, a few years earlier, you'd had like towards the citizens militia. Um, you know. Uh, public alternatives to the to NATO and the Warsaw Pact, which was an anarchist publication. Right. Um, so I mean, there there was like kind of you know, I mean, the, there there was like almost like an academic like kind of you know having these sorts of things that were were, were a thing. They were around at the time, you know, yeah. they used to turn up. But I mean, but given the fact that you know, as I say, so maybe I'm, I'm adding two and two up and making five here. But given the sort of pacifist orientation of freedom at that time, it seems a weird thing for them to be printing. Yeah. But also at that point, Roger Pierce was infiltrating freedom right okay that's interesting isn't it so <laughs> that makes me a bit suspicious about how they ended up being t told they were printing this leaflet so was this something that was being like published by this right-wing american or was it extracts of his appearing in some other publication well we don't know why it was who ordered it to be printed right. it, it wouldn't have been at the instigation of anybody involved in freedom at the time i don't think right and what I've been told, it was like a repackaging of this right-wing militia guy, yeah, yeah. but with like an anarchist cover. Okay, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm just thinking about, you know, like there's a, there's a whole bunch of like insurrectionary sort of primitivist kind of stuff that does exactly that, like, you know, 20, 30 years later that just brings yeah, to mind. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, maybe it was genuinely that, you know, someone thought that was a good idea to print, yeah. but it just seemed coincidental mm. yeah uh, to totally me. Yeah. i mean it might be and it, yeah i don't i don't want to invent a conspiracy theory but i mean like, like you say that the, the the majority of these documents are not being read by anybody at any, of any sort of height within the within the, the funding streams or whatever it's not like these are going outside of the police these this is all sort of internal police reports yeah well, i mean one of the other things is that the the format barely changed from like 1969 till the latest one we have you're pretty much the same so you've got the introduction and you've got the list of the name of the groups that are infiltrated and then you've got this is what they did this year this is what we think they're going to do next year um because of these things we want to carry on and we're totally justified with providing information that can't be got this is one of the other things which is said quite often like that the, the information we're collecting cannot be gained any other way and you're talking on those sort of the sort of twisty turny ways they justify themselves because they you know often you know what do you mention they often say that anarchists aren't doing very much at the moment but they might do similarly um we've got going back to 1976 we've got so such schisms and smaller groupings of political groups are of course the advantage of police whose manpower would be severely stretched stretch should the ultra left sink their differences and unite for joint demonstrations however <laughs> And this is the clever bit. This advantage, however, is to some way outweighed by the need for more greater SDS coverage of the smaller groups, you see, because because we're all, you know, there's loads of all these divisions actually makes it more we you know, we need we need the SDS despite the threat being diluted by the the all the little groups. Um so, you know, 
Yeah, you know, they do some quite, you know, quite good sort of contortions in there. Again, also similarly on the similar lines of, if you like, the using sort of the anarchist strike violent threat as a sort of reason for, and, you know, and the IRA using using sort of background of violence, which has nothing to do with the SDS. Or they they mentioned this one campaign group, which was like campaign against repression in West Germany and blockade. So basically, the, the, these two very small groups, they, I suppose, them prisoner support to people arrested in Germany, including uh, members of the Red Army faction. Now, just to make it a sort of clear division, these people were not a support group for the Red Army faction. They they merely sort of, sort of like, basically, doing like prisoner support for them, as we're saying. But this is kind of used, the fact that they're sort of like, sort of concerned about the way they're being treated in Germany as a you know the connection so yeah it's a blockade organization which came to prominence in the latter half of the year and are both supporters of the west german beda meinhof group which has received its major support in this country from anarchist groups which is total bullshit because obviously um red army faction marxist leninist uh and like you know nothing not not a strong connection with the anarchist sort of philosophy at all so it's but they were sinister and they looked a bit cool. So from the SDS point of view, it's like oh yeah, all the same sort of thing. They're a bit they're, you know it's the sinister ones. And talking about again another example of like I don't know lazy writing. So we come to to the Grunwick's dispute. Um, so it says yeah, it's, it's big. It's obviously so Grunwick's dispute. There's enormous dispute. Um, if you don't yeah, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes. Iconic. They had again of it. There's an anniversary website out there. Um, so, yeah, it began in August 1976 when 80 predominantly Asian employees of the Grunwick Film Processing Labs were dismissed after stopping work. Um, and it says that the strike happened because in support of higher pay and better working conditions. This is what it says in the report. Actually, it's not true. They went on strike because they wouldn't recognise a union. Like, really? I mean, like, pretty basic, isn't really it? Really basic. I mean, the, the time and again... Like the cops get these really basic things wrong. It's like it, you just get the, it doesn't matter really to them. <laughs> like no, none of the actual detail like that matters is. And it says, yeah, carries on the analysis of this bit. It's supported and organised by Apex Association of Professional Executive Clerical and Computer Staff um, Union and various other trade councils. The Grunwick factory was peacefully picketed until um, June nineteen seventy seven. Following a poorly attended demo in April 77, the dispute was taken up by the ultra-left and throughout June, July and August of that year, Trotskyist-inspired violence escalated in the streets surrounding by the Grunwick factory and especially at the two entrances where mobs inspired by the ultra-left attempted to prevent the, the employees' coaches, well, not employees, scabs, from entering the, the factory. So, um, yeah. Again, really weird analysis. This Jumping around a bit here, but just picking out, as I say, the low lights. So, since the SDS was formed in 1968 to deal with a particular problem of violent anti-American demonstrations, was it? It wasn't really anti-American, was it? <laughs> anti-war, yeah, anti-Vietnam War was the Americans were the aggressors in. I mean, you know, it's a really, it's a really big stretch that. Yeah, it's broad area of responsibility: the penetration of extremist groups to the left of the Communist Party. What does that even mean? You can't really beat the left of the Communist Party. Well, I, I guess what they're getting at is the Communist Party of Great Britain was quite supine in its attitudes yeah. to like demonstrations and also you know organising compared to uh, if you like the new left in inverted commas, the uh, Trotskyists and like the international Marxist group, international socialists, and I guess to, le- to, to a small degree anarchist groups. That's what they mean by that. They don't yeah, mean yeah. to the left. They mean 
more raggy. The more left wing you are, it's just about the more like the, the more aggressive, the more confrontational, which is like it doesn't really matter about the politics. Paragraph reiterates that whole thing about yeah, the names of the target organisations may have altered, but their aims have not, nor has their propensity for seizing on any topical issue, from tenants' disputes to industrial strikes, which they feel can translate to their own advantage. Again, can't be a genuine concern for the issue. Oh, no. They, they, they never acknowledge, oh, well, this this particular thing was born of a genuine injustice. This just doesn't exist in their world. It's one of those ones, how much of this is to dive into the mind of the cops and the cop culture? Or is it like, is this just a completely disingenuous document that's just like scrabbling around for, you know, justification? Sometimes I think they, they, they do seem to be like, oh, God, what are we going to say now? But some, I think some of it is gem- they generally believe it to the extent this is the way it helps them justify to themselves on a maybe personal level what they're doing. Right. I mean, because obviously if you start like, you know, getting all self-reflexive and like doubting yourself, then where that I guess end? yeah, where's that going to get? You're not going to get you promoted, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not going to. And there's similar things again, um, internment. Uh, in our in 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 the north oh, yeah. of Ireland, yeah. that is apparently again, it's that is a the left is described as the left have found a new course celeb. It's not that the you know, the British government has stepped outside the like, the real basics of habeas corpus and the rule of law to to such an extent that like there's outrage across Britain. No, no, it's not that. It's that the left have found some sort of special way of discrediting. Like overall, like your 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 overwhelming impressions after reading that, you're like, well, of course they're going to keep going and growing, which is what they actually did do. It seems like the memos and that are so short to to the Home Office. They you know they seem to be quite confident they were gonna get it actually because you know i mentioned earlier about the um, the 19 in 1983 uh um robert armstrong sort of writes and say actually do you mind telling us what you've been up to for the last 24 years because we've yeah. not really heard much from you beside this begging letter for some more cash um and actually i because actually in the in the the penultimate report that we have the report for much changes and we actually have like a profile of the undercovers within the annual report oh, okay. so and it, um, I think it's like 1983 and it's so uh, for instance Bob Lambert's in it and he is described as just turned up in the squad and he's doing clerical work waiting to be sent out to, to, to the field and I kind of thought oh maybe that report has gone to the home office right. because in response to this request but actually that's probably me sort of put again you know putting these two things together but but it actually says in the memo maybe we can just have a chat about it um so so why do you think i don't think actually this report did go to the home is what happened probably the assistant chief constable and maybe somebody from from the sds just had a bit of a, a chat down down at the club down at the garrick or whatever yeah. so you know it's like that's the briefing document for the person who speaks to the yeah yeah a few little bits and pieces of what the other things which are in the reports, which I haven't mentioned, is look, they have sort of accounts in them, mm. and they not all that interesting. The costs of running the cars, for instance, the the costs of the the officers' accommodation, um, and yeah, going back to the cars. Initially, they so they they basically used the police carpool for, and they had two or three cars, and then in the early seventies they started buying second-hand cars, right. and they actually have a in the accounts they have a list of all the cars and against the officers' names and the register plates, except, weirdly, and I find it's really hard to understand why they bothered redacting this, but they re- redacted all the register plates 
and all the officers' names against the cars now. This is like register plates circa 1974. So it seems hard, very hard to believe that that particular bit of information is going to be of use to anybody unless... I mean, perhaps some activists out there who who were around in like 1975 have a photographic memory and they memorised all their uh, comrades' number plates. I mean, I just seems a bit. I just don't understand what how that bit of information could be possibly be um, needed to be redacted. It just seems ridiculous. But it's also like illustrative of how much they have redacted. Yeah, very much. It's it's a, it's a code system, isn't it? And like from their point of view, everything's a code system. And like like unlocking part of that for us would be without that would be too scary to them. Yeah, on the so as I was saying, within these reports, have these list of all, all the all the groups they've infiltrated, but and also lots of quite a few are redacted. Mm. I mean, sometimes whole chunks, and we don't know. Sometimes you can kind of guess which. Some, sometimes I think it's like they've put a whole chunk out which have been infiltrated by by one officer whose names cover names being withheld, perhaps. So that's why they've done it. Other other times it just seems a bit. Yeah, try, you can't really figure out which ones. And obviously, some of the ones where I suppose we can get into the eighties when they did infiltrate one or two far right groups. Um, I guess they're ones that have been uh, had you know, bits redacted. I guess the National Front Combat Eighteen, maybe I think one of the we think they probably infiltrated. You know, the, 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 in terms of final impressions on these these reports, um, how much do we learn from them in in real terms? I think it. I suppose a couple of things. First of all, gives an insight into their mindset. I think, I mean, although to some extent, I kind of agree with you, sometimes they're sort of floundering around for examples. But also, obviously, there's stuff about, for instance, the their interpretation of the death of Blair Peach and Brixton riots really does give you an insight into uh, you know the group think that was going on within the the police at that time. So, I kind of they are of interest generally. I think it does does give a, a, a real good insight um one of the other things which i haven't mentioned i sort of, sort of glossed over it a little bit is the role of the civil servants in this the civil servants in the home office who sort of received these letters from the senior coppers at the met and then wrote back saying yes here you go we can have the you can have the funds so there's a, a loads of names I mentioned robert armstrong david hillary is another one um um, Partridge is another one, not Alan, unfortunately. Um, but these guys, I suppose, we've sort of made notes of them and created created sort of little files for them ourselves. And I guess I hadn't really given them too much thought, of them just being these Home Office sort of like yes minister types. But however, um, it, it reminded me that so within the, the Home Office, they were sort of split up into sections. One of the the section which covered the police was called F4. However, that section also included MI5. So the civil servants who were writing these letters back and forth, these people see absolutely everything. They see all the material from MI5. They see all the material from the Special Branch. But not only that, they sit, others, they sit on the, all these other committees, like the Subversion at Home Committee, which led to the blacklisting. And, and um, it reminded me of um, an article I wrote on the Subversion for Home committee um, and also also um, my colleague Evelyn she found this PhD written on the subversion for home committee and also other stuff around the miners strike in terms of like Thatcher's sort of like um, politicization of the civil service during that time maybe these the civil servants are more important than they, we first think because as I say they everything goes across their desk so they they, they, they really see the whole picture 
Um, and it also, I suppose, leads us to think how much the stuff that we are we don't get to see. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, we don't get to hear or see the meetings or the conversations that the senior civil servants had with the the Home Secretary. So they would have been be able to brief him not only on the intelligence that MI5 got, um, but also the intelligence that Special Branch were providing, and also on these subversion these various committees. And the other thing that also struck me, that also struck me, reading this this guy's um, um, PhD on the miners' strike was that he he does mention the the SDS and the spy cop scandal a little bit. It's definitely not his focus though. But a lot of the time he's um, talking about MI5 and the intelligence they're providing. But it also seems to me it occurs to me that a lot a lot of the time MI5's intelligence in in the Verticom is actually is so at least some of that is actually coming via via the SDS, via the Special Demonstration Squad, and it's kind of like being washed because for sure most of the time um, ministers aren't going to be told about individual you know uh, deployments of of the SDS, or and, and certainly not ministers from other departments for sure. So yeah, it, it is interesting how much the the connections with the MI5 have been much greater and deeper than I ever thought they were going to be. Uh, the, 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 it really seems that you know these. Yeah, the SDS are like kind of a cheap sort of outsourcing body almost for on the for the MI five in one way. Yeah, so there's um, so there's a committee called the Joint Intelligence Committee, but often in the of some some um, archives are are public on this, and often you you see a MI five represented, but you don't see special ones. You might see a chief constable or the. the commissioner or assistant commissioner but often you kind of but now you're thinking for what we know now from what the, S, the SDS is provision of intelligence to MI5 is when MI5 are talking about stuff that they know about it's actually some of it as a saying is actually coming via via special branch that's kind of kind of more of a, a historical point I guess anything else you want to add on on the annual reports yeah there's a lot of them <laughs> Well, thanks for thanks for doing all the reading so that we didn't have to. Um, when the when, when we get to the next round, we'll do a part two of this series with the the next sort of set of years. But um, that was the first of them anyway. If anybody's got any questions on it, please get in touch. You can find all our previous episodes at spycops.info. Please give us a review on whatever platform you use. If you'd like some stickers to advertise the series, you can find links to that at our website as well. 